We find ourselves in Colossians chapter 4. And in the midst of a discussion, if you like, of certain people, certain names are brought before us by the Apostle in these closing words. I said before that in the book of Acts there were at least 100 names of different people who were associated with the Apostle Paul and his work. That's a lot of people. If you were to consult also Romans chapter 16, you will discover there about 16 different friends that are spoken of who were associated with Paul. Right here you have in Colossians chapter 4 what one preacher called an enclosed group photograph. Of course, it's in words rather than in a picture. You have mention made of at least 10 people. These are thumbnail sketches, if you like, that are given of these people. One thing that we learn from this immediately before saying anything else is that the work of God is about more than one man. It's always been a common complaint of people in a certain Christian communion about churches like ours that we believe in a, quote, one-man ministry. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint such people, but there's no such thing as a one-man ministry. Because even though there would be one man who is delegated by God to bring the word to others, he's called the minister. If you study the book of Revelation, you'll find that in the opening chapters, especially chapters 2 and 3, there are seven churches, and each church has one messenger. Each church has one angel, or messenger is the word, angelos. And uh, we learn from that that it's perfectly scriptural to have a minister in a church. But a church doesn't depend only on the minister. And if it did, it would be doomed to failure. All of us have a task to perform. It's not the same work. It's not the same job. But everybody in the work of God has something to do. And Paul frequently shows us, not just in Colossians, but by his writings generally, that the work of God is not a solo effort. It's a joint effort. We're laborers together with God, he said on one occasion. And everybody has a part to play. There's a work for Jesus only you can do. And Paul recognized and acknowledged that there were others involved in the battle for truth and righteousness besides himself. And so we have here a number of thumbnail sketches. I mentioned one the last time we were in this portion, and I referred to him as the messenger, the faithful messenger Tychicus. He's mentioned in verses 7 and 8, all my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. So Paul is speaking about this man Tychicus, and as one has said, he didn't use a great volume of words in describing his associates, but what he said spoke volumes. Tychicus is a name that simply means fortunate, but his name could well have been faithful. He's referred to in a number of portions of Scripture, 
I'm not going to go back over those uh, tonight, but simply let me mention again that he was a friend and brother of Paul. He is referred to in that way in verse 7 as a beloved brother. Paul's not talking about a biological brother. He's not talking about a physical brother. He's referring to him in terms of a spiritual relationship. He's part of the family of God. Not only was he a brother, but he was beloved. He's a beloved brother. One who was well loved. And that's the term of fellowship. And we ought to love the brethren and we ought to act so as to be loved by the brethren. He was a friend and brother. He was a faithful minister. And he was a fellow servant. But from speaking about Tychicus, who we have called the messenger, Paul now goes on to speak about the member. A faithful member of the church. And we're thinking here of verse 9, and this man, Onesimus, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. In other words, he's one of the members of the church at Colossae. And he is a man who is noted in Scripture for what he used to be and for how he used to be. If you turn to the small epistle of Philemon, just right after the book of Titus, just before Hebrews, the epistle of Paul to Philemon, one chapter only, it mentions there from verse 10 of that epistle, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus. And again, when he talks about him as his son, he's not talking about him biologically. He's not saying, this is my physical son. He's talking about my spiritual son. And that's clear from the next statement. Whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. Now this man is worthy of note. This member of the church. Not least is he worthy of note because he is an outstanding example of what sovereign grace can do in a man's life. Onesimus, when we first look at him, we might imagine that he would never be described as a faithful and beloved brother. In fact, we'd never think of him as a brother at all. In the town of Colossae, it would have been utterly unthinkable that Onesimus could be described one day as a faithful and beloved brother, a member of the church, a member of the fellowship in that city. But then could not be said of many believers. Could be said of many of us, perhaps. People would never have believed that we would be, by the grace of God, where we are. It's a funny thing with siblings, especially older siblings. They know things about you. And when my sisters were here, we were discussing things from our childhood. That's a sign you're getting old, by the way, when you do that. But they were reminding me 
of a certain school teacher that we all shared at various points in our grade school education. And uh, this man was quite a disciplinarian. And when I was about 10 or 11 years of age, he seemed to think he had trouble with me in school. Uh, Perhaps he did. But one day, some years later, he met one of my sisters. And he had heard that I was ordained as a minister in the church in Mount Merion, which was not that far from where he lived, by the way. And he said to my sister, if you had told me when Stephen Hamilton was in my class when he was 11 years of age that one day he would be a minister, I would have laughed at you. I never would have believed that. Can't believe it yet, he said. He's a minister. It's amazing what the grace of God can do. It's amazing what the grace of God does do. And there's many who have a testimony to the saving grace of God, and it was a time in their lives when nobody would have believed that they ever would have been Christians, that they ever would have served the Lord. But that's what the grace of God can do. And we think of Paul himself. He was Saul of Tarsus. Remember how he was a zealous persecutor of Christians? People would have never believed that this man would become a Christian, that he would ever be a preacher of Christ. In fact, when Paul, or Saul as he was then, got converted, the people in the church, Acts chapter 9 illustrates it, found it hard to believe that he was a Christian. Remember what happened there? Let me turn back just for a moment to that passage. Acts chapter 9 and verse number 13. And Ananias is the man that the Lord had spoken to about Saul of Tarsus and told him to go to the street that's called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas for this man called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. That's Acts chapter 9 verse 11. Now then you come to verse 13. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. Saul of Tarsus had a reputation. He was an evil persecutor of God's people. And you can hear in the words of Ananias here the unbelief. Lord, as it were, are you sure? Are you sure this is the one we're talking about here? Because I've heard by many of this man What evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. But then you come down to verse 26. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. And that's a very strong phrase there in the Greek. He's actually wanting to become part of the church, to adhere himself, to glue himself to the work. He tried to do that. He essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. There it is. No, he's not a Christian. Are you kidding me? He's trying to infiltrate the work of God to kill Christians. That's what they thought. 
because that's what he was noted for. They found it hard to believe that he was now a saved man. Now, from what we know of Onesimus, uh, we find this in the book of Philemon. We think of three things in particular of him. In the first place, in Onesimus, we see a failure that was terrible. Just look with me at that book of Philemon, that one little chapter. Philemon, verse 11, Paul makes it clear, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. In time past he was unprofitable. How was he unprofitable? We'll go down to verse 18. And Paul says to Philemon, If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. You see, this man, Onesimus, was a dishonest, runaway slave. He was a servant, a slave of Philemon. And that's clear from this epistle. He was a servant. You see this in verse 16. And Paul wants Philemon now to treat him differently, not now as a servant, but above a servant, or the word is slave, a brother beloved. The situation is that Onesimus ran away from Philemon, his master. He stole from him, obviously, because that's what Paul is hinting at there. Uh, when he speaks about if he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught. He obviously made off with some stuff. He robbed his master. And then he wasted his ill-gotten gains in the city of Rome, which one writer called the common sink of all the worst vices of humanity. It was an evil place. Now, we're not told of all that he got up to there in his sinful condition. But we can certainly conjecture and say that there's no doubt he got involved in the pleasures of sin. Because Paul tells us that before his conversion, he was unprofitable. He lived an unprofitable life. And again, there are many who have been just like him. The Bible talks about each one of us in Ephesians chapter 2. Obviously, it's referring in the first instance to the Ephesian Christians... But this is something we apply to many of God's people, or all of God's people. Ephesians chapter 2, from verse 1, And you hath he quickened, or made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, our manner of life, in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and notice, were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So this is a description that the Lord gives of those who are now his people, but who once were lost. They lived unprofitable lives. The book of Titus chapter 3 verse 3 says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. 
Oh, isn't it good to remember what we once were? It's good to cast your mind back to what the Lord lifted you from. Isaiah 51 verse 1 says, Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord, look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, unto the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Remember the way it was when the Lord found you. Remember how you were when the Lord found you. Many can look back upon a life of great outward wickedness and debauchery. And Onesimus was one of those. He was a thieving, useless waster. Of course, there are those who weren't involved in such manifest and open sin, but their hearts were equally wicked and depraved. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's no difference. The heart, it doesn't say the heart of some people. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? For I was born in sin and shaped in iniquity, the, the, the psalmist said. Psalm 51 verse 5. And that's true of all of us. All of us have failed to keep God's law. We've all gone astray, just like lost sheep. And as you consider Onesimus and his past life of sin, maybe you can think of your own sinful and ungodly past. And you can say with the hymn writer, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but Jesus found me. Found the sheep that went astray threw his loving arms around me, led me back into his way. But there's something else about Onesimus that's brought to our attention by the Holy Spirit through Paul. Not only could we describe him as a failure that was terrible, but we see in his life a forgiveness that was total. See, the sovereign grace of God changes people. And God's grace reached this particular sinner and made him into a saint, into one of God's holy ones. So that he's now described by the Apostle Paul as a beloved brother. Now what he means by that is a brother in Christ. Someone who's in the family of God now. He's a member of God's household. And in the book of Philemon, you see in verse 10... Paul refers to how that came about. He's writing, of course, to Philemon, and he says, I beseech thee, I'm begging you, for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. I led this man to Christ in Rome, in the prison. Again, verse 16, he says, I want you now to treat him not as a servant or slave, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me. And how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This poor wretched sinner, Onesimus, somehow, some way, was brought into contact with the great Apostle Paul. God's providence is a wonderful thing, you know. How the Lord leads people into other people's lives. There are no accidents with God. My father had a brother for whom he prayed much. He had several siblings. He used to pray for them all the time that the Lord would save them. But this one brother, 
happened to be in a line of work where he was in regular contact with a man that we knew really well. And we hadn't known this until later, that when they were together at work, this other man was witnessing to my uncle. My dad didn't know that. But he was praying and praying and praying for his brother that the Lord would save him. And here's the Lord sending a man alongside him in his place of work to talk to him about Christ. Come to find out that he was the brother of someone that he he knew, i.e. my father. And I remember when that uncle got saved. Hallelujah. See, Paul was incarcerated at this particular time at Rome. That's a negative, isn't it? That's a terrible thing to happen to a child of God, especially a preacher. He should be out there preaching and he's in prison. What a waste. Isn't that what we would think? What a waste. He could be doing God's will. He could be doing God's work out there in public and he's in prison. But you see, God's ways are not our ways. And so when Paul was in prison, he was still a witness for the Lord. That's why he could write about those in Caesar's household who believed. Because Paul won them to Christ in the prison. He was a missionary in the prison. He didn't have to be out in public. He didn't have to be free to preach the gospel. And so in the providence of God, this runaway slave, Onesimus, a thief, comes across this imprisoned preacher. Somehow they're brought across one another's path. Is it that Onesimus got into trouble with the law? Perhaps. Because if he was a thief back home, he's still a thief when he's in Rome. So maybe he comes across Paul because of his own crimes and misdemeanors. But however it happened, we're not told. They came across one another's path in God's providence. And there in the prison, Paul wins them to Jesus. Onesimus, my son, whom I have begotten in my bonds. While I was in jail, the Lord used me to win this man to Christ. You know, it's a great privilege to be a spiritual father to a soul. To be able to say, here are those that I have begotten. Paul wrote about that in another place in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 and 15. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet ye have not, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. I have begotten you through the gospel. You're my spiritual children through the preaching of the gospel. What a great thing that is. Again, Paul said that about Timothy too, didn't he? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, and verse number 2, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith. He wasn't his biological son. He was his spiritual son. He won him to Christ. I tell you, men and women... God can use you, yes, even you, to be the means whereby souls are born into his family. 
Some weeks before she passed away, my wife, my wife received a correspondence from a former missionary in Scotland who worked alongside her. She said, I just wanted to let you know that our daughter was reminding me that one day in Scotland after a Sunday school, you led her to Christ. And June either didn't know that or hadn't remembered it. But it thrilled her heart. Because she used to wonder, I wonder if it ever did any good. Any of the the teaching of the children and instructing the children, I wonder if the Lord ever did anything through that. I used to have to tell her, you'd be sure the Lord has done plenty through that. And there's an example of it. Begotten through the gospel. God can use you to be a soul winner. Will there be any stars in my crown? You know, it might have seemed quite impossible, quite incredible actually to the Colossians, that a man like Onesimus could be reached and changed by the gospel. He certainly didn't look like a candidate for church membership, but it happened. His life was transformed. All his past was forgiven. Every sin was put under the blood of Jesus, just like ours is put under the blood of Jesus when we repent and believe. Listen to Acts chapter 13. What wonderful words are these? Verses 38 and 39. Acts 13, 38. Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, that's Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things. That means they're pardoned from their sins. And they have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. They're justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Since God forgave Onesimus, therefore, Paul urges Philemon to do the same. I want you to forgive him. Oh, I know he's done wrong to you. But I want you to treat him not as a servant anymore, but as a brother beloved. And especially to me. And so we have Onesimus now returning from Rome to Colossae. Returning to Philemon, his master, to make restitution. He was going to put things right with his master. Someone wrote that restitution is a first principle of the spiritual life. And it is. When you've done wrong to someone, the gospel will enable you to put that right. In Matthew chapter 5 from verse 23, Jesus said, Therefore if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way first Be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. Put things right. And I believe that's what happened to Onesimus. And that's what happened with Philemon. Their relationship, which was broken, was repaired by the gospel. Now look with me at... Verses 18 and 19 of Philemon. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, 
Put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it. Albeit, I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me, even thine own self besides. I'm taking responsibility. Fiduciary responsibility for Onesimus. Let me tell you, there's a beautiful gospel picture there. What's Paul doing here? He's offering to become his surety. You know what a surety is? It's someone who assumes all the debt incurred by another. He takes on all of his obligations, his responsibilities. Now, Paul didn't owe anything himself. Paul had not stolen anything from Onesimus. He didn't owe anything. But here he's taking responsibility for Onesimus before Philemon. He's offering to become his surety. He said, whatever debt he owes to you, I'm going to pay it. Is there not a wonderful gospel picture in that? This is what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's Supper. Christ is our surety before God. He has assumed all that debt incurred by us, all our responsibilities as sinners. He has taken that debt upon himself, and he has paid that debt in his own person so that we might be accepted in him, that we might go free. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What a great exchange. Our sin for his righteousness. He has assumed responsibility for our sins and we're able to take unto ourselves his righteousness. Philemon was urged to forgive Onesimus for the sake of Paul. And their friends as a picture of the gospel. Why does God forgive sinners? He forgives sinners for the sake of Christ. Remember that lovely story in the Old Testament of Mephibosheth, the one who was lame on his feet, He was in the position that he was in because of a great fall that had taken place. Ultimately, he was brought to the king's table and those lame legs of his were hidden from sight under the table. Wonderful picture of the gospel. He talked about why should he experience the grace of God who was himself a dead dog. But do you know why David showed mercy and kindness to Mephibosheth? Well, he said it himself, for Jonathan, thy father's sake. He showed him mercy for the sake of Jonathan. God shows mercy to us for the sake of Jesus. Martin Luther was right when he said, we are all God's Onesimuses. Every one of us. All our sins have been laid on Christ's account. And all his righteousness is imputed to us. What a gospel that is. The wrath of God that was our due. Upon the Lamb was laid. 
And by the shedding of his blood, the debt for us was paid. Another hymn puts it this way, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. This is what we see in the forgiveness of Onesimus, a forgiveness that was total. You know, when the Lord saves you, there's not one single sin that remains against your name. Just let that sink in. When you come to Christ, the book of Isaiah chapter 55 puts it this way, He will abundantly pardon. You know what that literally means? He will pile pardon upon pardon. For every sin, there's a pardon. For every sin, there's a pardon. There are no sins left that will ever be mentioned unto us, according to the book of Ezekiel, when we're in Christ. That brings me to this third and final thought. You not only have here in this church member, this faithful member, a failure that was terrible initially, and then a forgiveness that was total, but something else, a faithfulness that was tremendous. It is remarkable that the word Onesimus, the name Onesimus, literally means profitable or useful. And therefore, it's my belief that Philippians verse 11, or sorry, Philemon, Philemon verse 11, is a play on words. Paul is using a play on words, a, 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 an actual verbal device here. He said of him, in times past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. In other words, he's living up to his name now. His name means profitable or useful. Before he had not lived up to his name. He had disgraced his name. He was unprofitable. But now as a Christian, he's very profitable. He's a faithful man of God. He's changed. And we think about ourselves, whereas our former lives were useless, we, we were wasters. Yet in Christ, our lives will prove to be useful, both to God and to men. You know, so different was the character of Onesimus now that he was converted that Paul said he would have liked to have kept him and used him in ministry. You see that in verse 13. He says about him, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead, instead of you, Philemon, he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. I would have liked to have kept this man with me to serve. He was a faithful and beloved brother in the Lord. Why? Because a great change had come about in him. And what a blessing it is to see God's grace at work. A Chinese man, a Chinese national was once asked by a Christian man when he was in China. He said, Have you ever heard the Christian message? He said, No, but I've seen it. 
What do you mean you've seen it? Well, he mentioned this missionary. He said to me, this man is a living embodiment of the Christian message. I see the gospel in him. Do people see the gospel in us? Does the gospel affect the way that we act toward people, the way we speak to people, the way we interact with people? Is it obvious that there's been a change that has come about in us that is attributable to the gospel? What a blessing it is to see the Lord at work in people's lives, His grace going to work, changing people, making useless people into useful tools in God's service. And maybe tonight you can think of some Onesimus, some person, and right now they appear to be about as far away from Christ as they could possibly be. Well, let me tell you, God is able to save to the uttermost, and you should continue to pray for such a one. When I was just about to start into the theological hall, I was not yet in the college, but I was about to enter. I'd just recently been married, and I was working a secular job in a factory, making some money to try to save up for when I would be in college and wouldn't be able to do any work to earn money. So I need to have a, a nest egg put away there. And I was working all the overtime I, I could get. But there were some ungodly fellows in that place. And I used to, even as a young man, get opportunities to witness to them. There's one man in particular. And if you looked at him, you saw the way he lived terrible, terrible gambler. As the old saying is, he would have gambled on two flies walking up a wall. This man had a real problem. He had his wages spent before he got them every week. Well, some years later, I met a man who used to work in that factory. And he said to me, mentioning this man's name, did you hear about he got saved? Really? Yes, he's saved and he's a member of a certain church going on with God. His his whole life has radically changed. And I thought, praise God for grace. It's no secret what God can do. I know my wife was always very humble about things. But she, when she was a girl, had an opportunity at a gospel rally to meet the hymn writer Stuart Hamblin. And not only did she meet him, but her and her little friend from a neighboring farm sang to Stuart Hamblin after his service one night. They sang to him a song that he had written at the suggestion of John Wayne who was his neighbor. You know what that hymn is? It is no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. With arms wide open, he'll pardon you. It is no secret what God can do. 
And it's true. It's true. The grace of God is a marvellous thing. And the Colossians might well have been writing Onesimus off as a lost cause. We do that sometimes, don't we, with people? We, we write them off as a lost cause. <laughs> He'll never be saved. She'll never be saved. They're not interested in the things of God. They'll go to hell. But then, God does a work. And God did a work in this man's life and made him a member of the church so that Paul could write in Colossians chapter 4, Onesimus, who is one of you. He's one of you. Would the minister or other believers describe you as Paul described Onesimus? A faithful and beloved brother. May the Lord make us to be faithful. May he enable us to show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And may the Lord, even in this church, give us many Onesimuses for his glory and for the great eternity. Amen.